And as you're seated, please open the Word of God to Genesis chapter 25. Uh, As you know, Genesis 25 is uh, what we were studying last week, and the plan was to finish it all in one week as I was being trained, and I'm still learning, Lord willing, praise God. (laughs) But as I was being trained, my pastor always warned me about sausage sermons where you just crank out some and then you just, well, you're out of time, so you twist it and just keep cranking along the next time. But uh, Lord willing, this won't be just a sausage sermon. It will be a, a blessing as we continue to study the Word of God together. Genesis 25, we'll start reading in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two nations from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, and behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Israel was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and rose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Father, uh, your word, the law of the Lord, is perfect. Lord, it revives the soul. God, we pray that you would, as we study and read your word, that you would revive our soul, that your sure testimony would make us wise. Lord, that the precepts of yours that are right would rejoice our hearts. God, your pure commandments would enlighten our eyes, and Lord, that we would fear you because that's clean and it endures forever. Father, your rules, the rules of the Lord, are true and righteous altogether, and more to be desired are your words, God, than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey that drips from the honeycomb. And God, by those words, we, your servants, are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So, Father, we pray that that would all be true in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what kind of question is this guy about to ask? What kind of person is God's kind of person? 
What kind of person does God use? Is there a personality type or a kind of person preference that God uses? Is he after a certain kind of person, some kind of mold that we need to learn to fit into to be useful to God? Um, There are a lot of efforts out there for um, training people, for helping people grow in sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. And in some of them, some of the really good solid ones, even some well-meaning methods, there can be kind of a de facto stereotype kind of person that you have to be or you have to be willing to become to be considered useful in ministry or, or even just as a Christian. And it changes over the years, but, you know, many used to think, well, to be useful in ministry or to be useful as a Christian, you have to dress nicely. You have to wear a suit, right? Or, and you can't have any tattoos. Um, you, you can't have any of those things. Today, it's more like you can't wear a suit and tattoos would be helpful, right? <laughs> That's, um, you have to have a cool hairstyle, Uh, You have to have certain phrases to be part of an in-crowd, you know, to really show that you're God's kind of person. There's a lot of jargon within the church. And I'm not talking about the rich theological words of the Scriptures. We're not talking about the doctrine of of redemption and, and glorification and sanctification, justification, those words that are really big and that sound like jargon that we need to we need to embrace and define and explain and live. No, I'm talking about the other kinds of jargon like, uh, you know, I want to speak life over you or, or speak into your life or uh, we want to love on you with the hedge of protection around you as we are more missional. <laughs> you know, the, these kinds of um, buzzwords and, and jargon, and there's nothing wrong with the words necessarily, uh, but when they become part of the in crowd, that's how, that's how we identify those who are really in, they can become problematic. So do you, do you have to use words like that to be a Christian or to be useful to God? Do you have to fit a mold of using jargon or wearing cool clothes? What about your personality? Um, do you have to be weak and wishy-washy, kind of spineless and just nice all the time? Is that what God is after? Or maybe you have to be that really loud and obnoxious person who's always yelling and screaming about something or complaining about everything or really politically active. Maybe that's the kind of person that we can see as useful to God. Maybe you have to have a really growly voice or a really high-pitched voice. I mean, you know, there are a lot of ideas about what people think is useful to God. And, and it kind of seems funny in a sense, but how many of you have ever thought about that, that Christians often can look the same or sound the same? How many of you thought, well, I can't serve in that kind of ministry. I can't be useful to God that way because I don't, I don't look like that. I don't sound like that. I don't talk like that person. I don't dress that way. I've thought that. I mean, to be honest, I've thought that. And, and in fact, it was said about me at a particular church, well, th- this guy's not this kind of church enough. Uh, he wouldn't fit in. Really big ones for us. The, the, the really big one, I think, is, is look what I have in my past. You know, God can't use me. I'm not God's kind of person because before I came to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, look, I did this. I, I had that. I was this or that. Or um, look at the terrible things that I've been. God couldn't use me. Or the other side many people use is, you know, I don't have one of those really big conversion stories. You know, I, I wasn't drunk every night on the stool until Jesus saved me and, and, you know, he's turned my life around. I just have this simple, quote-unquote, testimony. 
So what do we have to do? What do we have to become to be useful to God? We talked last week about how God chose Jacob, but not Esau. Why? Was it because Jacob was God's kind of person? Was it because Esau wasn't God's kind of person? As we study Jacob and Esau, do we see anything in the character of these twin brothers that we can point to and say, ah, that's it right there. That's why God uses some. That's how we can be useful to God, or that's what would be usable. Well, To get to these verses about Jacob and Esau, let's review for just a minute where we have been, how we got here. In chapter 25, we saw that there were four sections. In the first section, there was the transition from Abraham in verses 1 through 11. We saw that Abraham produced eight different sons, and each one of them became a nation. And that was God's promise to Abraham, that he would become the father of many nations. But God's promise is only transferred to one of them, Isaac. And we talked about how God's plan just continues to march forward. It continues and, and it, it succeeds until it is completely over at the end. And that's a good thing, that God's plan keeps going. Time is not this cruel, heartless, cold marching on of time that, that ruins us and our plans and, and takes everything good away. We believe in a good God who's working out a good and perfect plan. And so we trust in Him. We rest in Him. So even when we die, His plan continues and that's a good thing. The second section was the toldot, the generations of Ishmael, verses 12 through 18. And we saw that God didn't allow his word to be distracted by the line that was not Isaac's line. Uh, This was Ishmael's line. And he showed us that even his promises to other people, his promises that have nothing to do with us, are still fulfilled. Because when God speaks, God fulfills. God fulfills his promises. The, the exciting ones, the ones that we're fearful of, the ones that don't apply directly to us, everything God says, he does. God is always God. He never changes. He never forgets. That's why we trust him. And then we looked at verses 19 to 26, number three, the Toledot, the generations of Isaac. Together with his wife, Rebecca, they faced two challenges, not being able to have any children. And then when they began to have children, when, when Rebecca was pregnant, she conceived there were twins, and they were violently wrestling around. So they took both of those challenges to the Lord. They prayed to him, and they trusted him with the answer. Even when the answer was not, well, everything's going to get better right away. So we're learning, we're being reminded to take all challenges to the Lord. He's going to teach us. And we're going to grow as we go through challenges, as we trust in Him. Now, we've talked about that many times, right? We we know that lesson. God brings hard times. There are hard times that come into our life that God uses to grow us into Him. But here's the new part. Only as we take those challenges to Him in faith. See, there may be a whole lot of hard times that come into our life that just beat us up, (laughs) and don't make us grow, or don't don't teach us to, to mature in our faith, and don't don't expand our faith in in the Lord because we're not trusting in Him. When we're not trusting in Him, it's only as we trust in the Lord with all of our heart and we don't lean on our own understanding that we grow in Him. But if we stubbornly hold on to our understanding, if we lean on what we know rather than trusting God, well, the lessons don't sink in for us. Now, we talked about that a little bit last week, but what we didn't really get to was to to think about what does it look like 
What would that look like in my life? Because it can look like many times demanding to know from God, God, why am I going through this? Why are these hard times happening? What am I supposed to be learning? God, haven't you already taught me these lessons? (laughs) I mean, aren't I far enough along that you can just teach me something different? Um, You know, why do I have some of the same trials, the same lessons? I think I'm doing okay, God. Why do I have to learn this lesson? Yet another lesson. I need to know why. See, when we demand that from God, we are leaning on our own understanding. We're not trusting Him. We're not trusting our Lord. See, that's why we talked about sometimes you go through difficult things so that other people can learn. We saw that in, in, from Paul's life in Philippians 1. Other people were learning as he was suffering. Sometimes we go through difficulty so that we can be comforted by God. Second Corinthians 1 says, so that we can comfort other people the same way God comforted us. So there are a lot of different reasons we can go through a lot of hard times. Sometimes it's just because we live in a sin-cursed world. So even when we cannot pinpoint a specific lesson, even when we don't see exactly what God's doing, even when we, like Job, haven't done anything to deserve it or anything necessarily to need it, we trust that God is good and that God is working out His good, perfect plan perfectly. And that may be the exact lesson that we're supposed to be getting. And that may be why we're going through the same trials over and over again. It may be why the same things happen or different things keep happening that try us and tempt us and and afflict us and, and cause us so much suffering because we're fighting against what the Lord is doing. He says, trust in me, trust in me, not trust in your understanding of why this is happening. As you fight against God in a struggle, it should be a tip-off. Well, (laughs) this lesson may be that I'm supposed to be learning to trust God more than trust my understanding of the lessons. Now, one more thing related to this before we move on, because one of the hopes that I hear many Christians, including myself, I've said this before, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll understand it all. You know, we'll get it then. That's when we'll see the whole picture, and then we'll understand, and and that's what we look forward to often. That's when we'll be able to understand why everything happened the way that it did. But it's another way of saying, I have to understand why. And I'll allow not knowing why as long as God promises to tell me in the future. Really, that's what we're saying. You know, I I need to understand. I'm still going to rely on my own understanding. I'll just wait to have it fulfilled until I get to heaven. Now, there's a verse that many hold on to for that kind of hope. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Right, that's the verse that's made to say right now I only know a little bit. I only know partially. But when I get to heaven, then I'll know completely. I'll know in full everything that God was doing. But the verse is not telling us that we're going to get to know everything. And, and we want to make sure that we do hold on to the promises of God, but we don't hold on to what are not promises of God. We will see more fully, but this can't mean that we're going to know everything for three reasons. One, the word full in that verse doesn't mean complete or whole. It means more extensively or more intensively. We'll understand in a better way, 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve is teaching us, Um, If this passage is talking about the perfect being heaven, and that's debated already, but if that's what it's talking about, then when we get to heaven, we will understand in a more full and better way, but it's not promising us 
that we'll understand everything. Why not? Well, for the second reason, because only God is omniscient. Only God is all-knowing. And there are attributes of God that he can, in his grace, give to us. Uh, Some of his attributes that are communicable, that he can give to us, are peace. The peace of God he can give to us. Do you know there's never been a single time where God went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I don't know know what I'm going to do with that. And and, and there was a struggle, or there was anxiety, or there was worry. There's never been a time God's peace is in himself. He can give that to us in his grace. That's something he can communicate to us, his goodness, his righteousness, his love. Those are things he can give to us. But there are some things that are exclusive to God that are incommunicable. They, they cannot be given to us. Um, self-existence, right? He supports himself. He needs nothing from anyone. And he can't give that to us because we're always totally and completely dependent on him. Uh, eternality will exist forever, but we haven't existed forever in the past as God has. One of those is omniscient, all-knowingness. That's exclusive to God. So, so the verse can't be telling us, and, and we shouldn't have the hope that one day we'll know everything. But there's a third reason, a one more reason uh, that we need to understand we're never going to know everything, and that is from Ephesians chapter 2. In verses 6 and 7 that tell us that it's going to take forever for our finite minds to learn about God's grace to us in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7 says that God raised us up with Jesus in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the innumerable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The word ages there means in the eons, the eons and eons and the ages of time forevermore, the innumerable riches. You you can't count them. They go on forever, the riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's telling us it's going to take forever to to understand this, that that God's going to show for us, show us. The word is to display, to give outward proof. It's It's a forever, it's an eternal show and tell about Jesus and about his grace his mercy, his kindness. And so it's going to take forever for us to grasp the mercy from God in Jesus. So when we get to heaven, we will understand more fully, but not perfectly. We'll never arrive at a perfect knowledge because only God has perfect and complete knowledge of everything all the time. So don't hold to a promise that God has not made. Hold to the promises that he has made. That even though we're not going to get to know everything or the reason for everything, we trust the God who does. We know God who does. So we don't demand from God to tell us why things are happening. We can ask. We take all of our challenges to this God. We trust him with the answers. He gave uh, an answer oftentimes to people in the scriptures. And we talked about how it wasn't always easier for them to know the why or to know what was happening. But they trusted in him because our confidence is only ever rightly placed in God himself. So our lessons there in that section were to take all challenges to the Lord, our God, and to trust him with the results. Even when the results get harder, even when it's not easy or even when it's not possible for us to understand. But as we move through chapter 25 here, we see that the children are born. Isaac and Rebekah named these two boys in faith. And Esau, we saw, was named based on the appearance of his, his appearance, based on what he looked like, right? They named him Harry. They named him Esau. 
That's what Esau means. Jacob was named based on his actions instead of his appearance. Heel grabber, supplanter, or cheater. Now, by the way, when I said that last week, many of you know that my youngest son's name is Jacob. And many people looked <laughs> right at Jacob. And, uh, and he said, wow, I, I guess I need to start wearing a name tag that says cheater. <laughs> that wasn't the, that's, that's not what we had in mind <laughs> when we named him Jacob. Um, J- actually, Jacob has the same origin as James, my name. So um, there we go. It's interesting. The meanings of names and maybe one day, maybe one day he will take over. I don't know. (laughs) The supplanter, uh, but hopefully never as cheater. But Isaac and Rebekah named these boys. There's recognition in their name of what God had said to them. That's inherent in their names. The older will serve the younger. He's going, the, the younger one, Jacob, is going to supplant. He's going to take over for the older one. And so Isaac and Rebekah show faith in God's word in their life. So now we get to verses 27 to 34 and the fourth section in this chapter that that we now turn to Jacob. And remember that this is Isaac's toledot, the generations of Isaac. But really, Isaac, between now and chapter 35, when his his section of of the scriptures is over, we're really only going to see one chapter from Isaac. But we're going to see different kinds of people struggling in these chapters, some of whom God is using, some of whom God is not. So what kinds of people in these pages, in these words, is God using? We saw Abraham, right? We saw what kind of person he was, that, that he was a strange mixture. He was, he was courageous in battle. He was passive at home. Remember, he went out and he faced the humongous army, yet when Hagar came and, and it was Sarah's idea to take Hagar and give him to his wife. He said, okay. And then there was a, a son who was born, and then he said, I'm staying out of it. You work it out, right? There was courage in battle, and yet there was passivity at home. He was enthusiastic in hospitality. He was generous and trusted God when he and Lot parted, yet he lied about who Sarah was twice to save his own life, right? To spare himself. He would express his concerns to God about the covenant and God Maybe you could just use my servant. Maybe you could just use Ishmael. He he was concerned, and yet he had such great faith that he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. So such a strange person Abraham was, such a strange combination of strength and weakness. And then Isaac comes. He replaces Abraham because Abraham goes to be with the Lord. What kind of man is Isaac? Well, Abraham was so worried about Isaac that he might be influenced and convinced to stay out of the promised land that he said, no, Isaac's going to stay here. Servant, go get him a wife and bring her back. Don't let him get out of the land. He may be easily persuaded to stay out of the land. We actually see very little of Isaac comparatively to others in the scriptures. He appears impressionable. He appears passive. He kind of goes along with things happening when he should respond. He should say something or do something different. He should be watchful at certain times in his life, as as we'll see. Is that what God looks for? Is is he looking for passivity? Is he looking for just, ah, just go along with the flow, whatever happens? Is he looking for that combination that Abraham had of sometimes strong and courageous and sometimes, ah, (laughs) I don't know. Look at his two sons. Maybe this will help. How different are these two sons? Maybe there's something here in these two um, because many messages have have been taught. Many lessons have been given to people about, well, the personality, the characteristics of of Jacob and Esau. You've got to be more like one, and you've got to be less like the other. 
But is that what we learn? Well, let's look first at the two different parts in this section. In A, let's contrast Jacob and Esau. In verses 27 and 28, let's look at the contrast between them. The contrast started when they were born. And remember, they couldn't be more different. If you've ever had more than one child, you can understand how two children or three or four children from the same household can be somehow total opposites, right? Esau was named by his appearance. You remember he looked like an animal. Verse 27 says, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. His life is lived outdoors. And to us, there's something appealing about that, right? How many reality shows are there about people who live in a house and have a normal life? How many reality TV shows are there that are really interesting about people surviving on the land, right? And and they're out there all alone and they figure out how to provide for themselves and build houses and and all of that. You know, that's cool, right? Being outdoors and and surviving out there requires strength and ruggedness. It's independence and self-sufficiency. But those are things that get taken too far in Esau. And we may not understand that until we start to compare him with Jacob, because Jacob, in contrast, is a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, when I read that in English, I think that Jacob sounds like a wimp. (laughs) Esau is a man out there. He's a hunter. He's a skillful hunter. He's surviving off the land, and Jacob stays home in the tent, and he's quiet. And that's what it sounds like in our ears. But the contrast between them is not Esau the champion strong man and Jacob the skinny weakling. These people are nomads. They're they're foreigners. They're, They're travelers in this land as shepherds. They all dwell in tents. Okay, so Let's, let's understand that there's no mansions or houses or anything that's luxurious here. They're, they're supposed to be in the tents. Why? Because that's where the family is. That's where the responsibility is. That's where the community is of the family. That, that's where Jacob is supposed to be. So the contrast is that Esau becomes a man of the field, but not the farming field, not the, not the pasturing field for, for the flocks. Esau shirks all of those responsibilities. He leaves behind the family, and he goes out into the wild field, and he's hunting by himself, for himself. And he'll share some of the game with his father, Isaac. But Esau is really what we're supposed to get here is that Esau is living for Esau. He doesn't care for those he leaves behind. Jacob, on the other hand, dwells in tents because that's where he's supposed to be as a man in the family. But it says he's a quiet man. Now, I struggle with that translation. The word for quiet there literally means perfect or blameless. That's what the word means. In fact, nowhere else is it ever translated quiet when it's used in the original and translated to English. In describing Job in Job 1.1, this word is used for Job being blameless. That's this word. And upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So it really carries the idea of complete, of finished, of honorable, of level-headed and solid and dependable. Those are kind of the ideas that that we're supposed to get from this word. In Psalm 37, 37, it's translated, mark the blameless, this word, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. Now, that's kind of where the idea comes from for quiet. It's an upright man who, who who is blameless, a man of peace. 
So that's where we get the idea of quiet from. And you can understand that the translators didn't want to use perfect or, or complete for Jacob because it's going to become pretty clear very quickly that Jacob is not perfect. <laughs> He's not blameless. But quiet just gives us that diff, different nuance in our mind that I don't think is very helpful. Because Jacob is very far from weak. He's taking on the responsibilities of life, caring for the family. Because remember, Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. It says they've now grown up, verse 27 says. So Jacob, Jacob is, is now at least 20, Jacob and Esau. Isaac is at least 80 years old, probably older than that. Esau likes to get away from everybody, go camping, go spend his time out in the field, while Jacob stays around and sacrifices for the family. We also are going to see that Jacob is not physically weak. Chapter 29, we're going to see him roll the stone away from a well that takes a group of men to move normally. He's going to wrestle with God and men and prevail. Later in in Genesis uh, chapter 28, Jacob is going to flee and go to live with his uncle Laban. And we're going to find out he's a very skilled shepherd. So he's not, he's not just sitting around in tents all day being quiet, right? We, we see the contrast between these two. They don't look alike. They don't act alike. They are opposites. Jacob is quiet as in level-headed and solid and dependable. Esau is strong, impulsive, not dependable, probably braggadocious. But Isaac tends to like Esau. He favors Esau. You you almost get the idea that Esau is everything that Isaac never was, but wanted to be. Isaac in his passivity, Isaac in in his just going along, really likes Esau, his son. So verse 28 says he loved Esau because he ate of his game. There's partiality here from father to one of his sons over the other. But it also says that Rebekah loved Jacob. Remember that Rebecca was that one who was the faithful one in her house. She was the one who was doing the chores. She was the one that, that rushed out to be hospitable. She was the one who courageously left, obeyed God's call, and married Isaac in the face of unknown. That may be a reason for her preference for Jacob because he's dependable and, and she was dependable and she stayed at home and he's home. And, but the problem here is that we've got favoritism. Favoritism in the home, which breeds more favoritism and and people taking sides. Now, just from a basic, simple family perspective, it's never a good idea to play favorites in a home. It's called not just not a good idea. In the scriptures, in, in fact, in James 2, it's called a sin. It's called sin because partiality is strictly forbidden. And the explanation in James 2 was the difference between a rich person and a poor person. Like you give preference to the rich person and you treat the poor people badly. But what the problem with partiality is, whether it's rich or poor or black or white or it's something I like and something I don't like or, or whatever it is, this person's name or this person's ethnicity or race or whatever it is that people get, become partial toward, The problem that James 2 explains is that it makes you a judge with evil thoughts. Partiality says that you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. So it's kind of a bigger deal than it seems. It's a bigger deal than than it might appear on the surface. There's constant sin going on in this family, lived out daily between father and son and mother and son. And so the contrast is clear. It's such a deep 
dividing line that the parents essentially divide over it and the family becomes divided over it. But, but again, remember that God said, I've chosen Jacob and not Esau. Was that because there was something about one of them? Was one of them better than the other? Did one of them have something that the other didn't have that made him qualified or disqualified? At this point, we might think that's the case. It might look like that. You know, maybe God doesn't like hunters. Some of you sat up. You're like, hey, wait. <laughs> no, that, that's not what we're learning here. Maybe God only likes those who do what they're supposed to do. Maybe he, likes, maybe he chose Jacob because Jacob's at home doing what he's supposed to do. You have to be good enough for God to accept you. Is that what we're supposed to see here from Jacob and Esau? Those ideas are all going to be blown out of the water here in B, verses 29 to 34. Let's look now at the contest between Jacob and Esau. The contest. Again, if you've had more than one child, you know that eventually there are going to be some tussles, some, some struggles, right? Especially if they're different. And these two couldn't be more different, and so they clash here. Jacob, who is the level-headed, solid one, he's been taking his responsibility to the family seriously, he says, I want the role of father. I want the role of Isaac when he's gone. He wants the birthright. He's not supposed to have that, though. The birthright, the one who gets to take over the family when the father is gone, is supposed to be Esau. But the whole family knows. They've got to know about the prophecy that God gave, that the, the older would serve the younger. So Jacob is, it could be that Jacob is looking for a way to bring that about now. Like, I want that now. And we're not told why he wanted it. Maybe it was because when you get the birthright, it comes with a double portion of the inheritance. You know, I want twice as much stuff. Maybe it was just the status of I get to be in charge, even over my older brother. How many of you younger siblings would like to be in charge of the older siblings, <laughs> right? The whole family knows about this. Jacob now starts to use his time, his energy, his level-headedness, his solid thinking and he starts to follow it also too far like Esau had done. He starts to go into manipulation. And he sets a trap to catch the hunter. And Esau may never have seen it coming. As you know, Esau comes into the family camp from hunting and he's exhausted. So in his loud, rude, manly voice, he demands Jacob to give him the food. Now, we read this verse here. Uh, verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. You know, the original is actually a bit more slang and loose. It's more like, let me slam that red stuff, the red stuff. That's what the original is actually saying. It's more the word gulp. He's not, he doesn't have time for politeness. He doesn't have time for being nice. He, does, he barely has the energy to sit down and to eat. He doesn't even really know what Jacob has. He just says, the red stuff, the red stuff. I need to gulp it down. So the note here says that he was not only red in color, he also demanded the red stuff, the red stuff. So people started to call him Red, Edom. And the people who came after him would be called the Edomites, the red ones. But without skipping a beat, without demanding Esau, say please, Jacob is already ready in his mind with the answer. Sell me your birthright now. One for one exchange. But there's nothing even about it. There's nothing equal about this exchange. Again, the birthright is the designation as the head of the family when the head goes to be with the Lord. You take control of the family. 
Esau says, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Now, as for whether he was really about to die, I'm not convinced. Now, the Bible, the Bible is always true, okay? So I'm not arguing with what the Bible says. The Bible says that, I, that, uh, that Esau really said this. And I, I believe that Esau really said this. But I don't think he was literally actually about to starve. See, if you're actually starving and you eat a whole pot of stew, your body is going to reject it. <laughs> we'll leave it at that, right? We'll just keep it nice. The body will reject all that food if you're literally starving. But not only that, but Isaac has everything that Abraham had before. He's got flocks. He's got servants. There is so much food around. It wouldn't have been fast food, but he wouldn't have had to make this kind of offer or, or accept this kind of offer from Jacob. See, what I see in this circumstance is really, we'll call it a hangry honesty. <laughs> a hangry honesty. You know, I'm about to die, in, in other, or really, I think better, it would kill me to have to fulfill the responsibility of birthright. It would just take my life away. What good is that to me? You know, I can't stand the idea of being held down by a family, having to provide for them, having to protect them. I love my freedom too much, Esau is saying. He's really only too willing to give up his birthright. So Jacob's trap has worked, but it's almost like Esau sees the trap and jumps in anyway. He says, I don't want this birthright. Now, whether it was really that he felt like he was going to die or whether he was just suffocating under the idea of that responsibility, Jacob seizes this opportunity. He says, I don't want this to be forgotten. He says, swear to it. Make this official. Esau does. And he sold his birthright for a meal. Verse 34 says, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, some, a bowl of beans and some bread. <laughs> That's what he gave to Esau. And as as important as the birthright was to Esau, it was nothing. The verse says he ate, he drank, he rose, and he went his way. Like nothing happened. That's why Moses says, thus Esau despised his birthright. To despise is to scorn it, to show contempt. He didn't care. So we see that Esau is condemned for despising the birthright. And at a human level, that makes sense, right? I mean, he's supposed to be taking care of the family, He's supposed to be the one who takes over when Isaac goes away. But surprisingly, the Bible is very rough on Esau for this. It's not just that he's shirking family responsibility. In fact, Hebrews 12, 16 says that Esau was an unholy person. And not just an unholy person, but on par with someone who does not receive God's grace. He's on par with the person who allows bitterness to spring up and cause trouble. On par with the kind of person who is, in Hebrews 12, sexually immoral. That's what kind of level the Bible places Esau on. He becomes the picture of the person who's so hardened in sin after rejecting God so strongly for so long that even though he regretted what he did and he sought strongly repentance with tears, he was rejected. He was not permitted to repent and believe. The word of God strongly comes down on Esau. Why so strongly for this? You know, in, in Luke chapter 12, you remember the man came to Jesus? And he said, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You know, we've got this dispute of, of the inheritance and, and things. And, and Jesus says to him, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you about this stuff? Jesus says, I'm not getting into you know, the, the probate business. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to resolve wills and trusts and all that. He says, look, your life is a lot more than stuff. Don't be consumed with covetousness. 
it's kind of like a downplaying of these earthly inheritance questions. But Esau is so soundly condemned for despising his birthright. Why? Why the difference here? Well, because this was not an ordinary birthright, was it? This is the birthright, the care and the protection of the family that will bring about God's chosen people, Israel, the the one that will bring the Messiah, the Savior of the world because of our sins. That's who God has entrusted Isaac to lead, and then the birthright will fall to, supposed to be Esau. Esau rejects it. God's word hangs in the balance. Will you trust him? Will you obey him, or will you reject it? Esau said, I'm out. I don't want it. He rejected. There, there was so much more at stake here than simply earthly obligations. Now, we should take care of earthly obligations, but, but not because they're earthly, not because they seem like a good idea, but because our God is our God and we live for Him. And so we carry out obligations because we trust and believe and obey our God. See, it wasn't that God didn't use Esau because he was a manly man hunter or because he, was, because he talked too much or because he had some kind of personality. And God didn't choose Jacob because he was so holy and upright and such a good guy. There are two sides to why God didn't use Esau. The first was that as we saw from Romans 9 last week, from God's perspective, Esau was not selected. He was not chosen. Before Jacob or Esau had done anything bad, God decided But see, that's from God's perspective. And rarely ever do we have that kind of information. Only here do we read about it that God did it ahead of time and with those names. Otherwise, we don't get to know that. So from God's perspective, he didn't select him. But number two, from a human perspective, Esau was not useful to God because Esau rejected God. He rejected his plan. His word, his promises meant nothing. See, Esau was already in the place of being the one to take the birthright. It was already his. He had the freedom to go with that plan, but he rejected it. He cared more about what he wanted than what God wanted. And so Jacob's act here is not held up as an example, but Esau is pinpointed as the problem, specifically his heart. This is all on Esau. Jacob's not an innocent person here. There's not something great going on with Jacob that God says, I better choose him. God's word proves true because because Esau rejected it, but God had already rejected Esau. Jacob messed up and did something sinfully here. He, 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 de- he didn't deceive, but he manipulated the situation. He, he tricked his brother, stole it. I mean, there are a lot of different things that you can, you can describe this as, but God did this, yet Esau did this. You know, Jacob did this, yet God did this. And again, it's that, it's that question in our minds of, well, who, which was it? I mean, it was God sovereign? Yes. <laughs> was man free to choose? Yes. We see that that's how it works out, and we can't, we can't reconcile it in our mind, but we're not supposed to. <laughs> we trust in the Lord, and we're given the responsibility to respond, either in belief, either in faith, either repentance, or in hardness of heart. So our lessons here are, well, first, let's prioritize the eternal things. Prioritize eternal things. Not not our earthly things, not not the things that are around us that are are such a big deal in our minds so often. 
God's words, God's plans, God's kingdom, his throne, those eternal things, that's what we prioritize, where Jesus is, right? At the right hand of God. Our number one goal for the time that we have should always be God's will for God's glory. That's how we can become God's kind of people. It's not by taking on a responsibility. It's not by dressing a certain way, having or not having tattoos, speaking a certain way, you know, trying to be cool, trying not to be cool, trying to be politically active, trying to be passive. It's not a loud personality, a quiet personality. It's not all the things that we look for that we can see in mankind, that we can see in brothers and sisters. It's trusting the Lord in faith, turning away from sin, believing in Him in love. That's how He uses people. So we can be any kind of person when we're not sinning, when we're loving God, when we're loving other people. It's not whether you like the outdoors or the indoors. (laughs) It's whether you like His kingdom, whether you love His kingdom and you're prioritizing eternal things. Are you living for the right now? Or are you living For the eternal things, God's kingdom. Do you seek what you like? Do you like the way things are because they're the way that you want them to be? Or are you seeking a different, a better eternal home? See, that helps us to understand. That helps us to see what what am I prioritizing? The next part here, the next lesson is pursue those things. Pursue those eternal things God's way. See, it's not, it's not wrong to be ambitious for the Lord. It's not wrong to be motivated, to, to be excited. You know, sometimes we sing these exciting songs, and I look around on Sundays, and some of us haven't told our faces that this is exciting stuff that we're singing about, right? That God's going to rip the skies apart, and Jesus is going to come back for us. And we're like, Jesus is coming back. And <laughs> That's exciting news. That is good news. That is a blessing that... The, I mean, we're not ruled by our emotions, but sometimes our emotions are going to get involved. This is really good news. We serve a great God. And so being motivated, being ambitious, being excited is not wrong when we're doing things God's way. Don't take the pragmatic approach. Well, you know, it worked. Whatever works, that's what we'll do. Jacob wanted the right things, but he wanted them for the, right, for the wrong reasons. So he went about them the wrong way. So, so we don't follow Esau's example and we don't follow Jacob's example. There is no shortcut to being made more like Jesus. There's, there's no shortcut to living God's way, being God's people. He tells us it's minute by minute. It's hour by hour. It's day by day growing in trust, growing in faith, growing in love and that hope that we have in Jesus. Father, we thank you, Lord, that that is true, that Jesus is coming back for us. God, thank you that he has come once already, Lord, that he lived perfectly, that he died to pay our penalty, that he rose from the grave. God, thank you. Lord, I pray that that would never be a message that becomes dull to us. Father, I pray that that would never be a message that we forget or that that we don't live in light of constantly. God, I pray that that would be the gospel good news message that we speak about, that we talk about, that we live out, Father, wherever we are. Father, we thank you. God, thank you that we don't have to try to become something we're not, that we don't have to try to change into something that you haven't made us to be. God, you can use us when we're quiet people. You can use us when we're loud people. God, you can use us 
in the different ways that you've made us to bring glory to yourself, Father. That we would sacrifice the things of this world, that we'd sacrifice the things that are comfortable to us, God, that we would live in light of the good news of Jesus Christ, in light of the truth of his love. Father, thank you. I pray that that would be exciting to us. Lord, not just momentarily and and motivationally for a minute, Lord, but that we would live our life in light of that with a joy that doesn't make any sense to anybody around us. Lord, because our hope is not found here. Our truth is found in your word. And God, that shows us and teaches us and grows us to be like Jesus. We thank you for that in his name. Amen.